Okay, and welcome back to Fast Ship Performance then. I'm Tim Davies, and I've got a post with you now. It's about me being grounded late last year. And I must admit, having looked on my uh, podcast host, I haven't put a post out really since mid-December. So my bad. I had a bit of a busy year last year. And of course, I don't know whether anyone's tried to lose a significant amount of weight, but you don't necessarily feel very happy doing so, I found. So it wasn't really my interest to, to rush out with some kind of content. But I am going to try and make that change this year and try and put something out every couple of weeks. I've got about three posts to put out and uh, this one is quite an interesting one actually and it's caused um, a a bit of conversation especially in my office uh, where of course I work part-time as well as fly the airplane. So for a couple of months then since uh, about mid-November I wasn't flying, I was overweight for the aircraft and I had to lose a few pounds and in this essay it does say a few pounds that's not strictly true. I had to lose about 10 kilograms which is quite a significant amount for what essentially is a land mammal and not a whale, I think you'll find. Um, But the truth is, I didn't really notice it on me. It was a real insidious build, and I do look at people that are slightly overweight now differently, Um, and if I put it down to anything, I would say, for me personally, it was um, laziness, I was in an office, Uh, I wasn't really eating any kind of different food as such, but I was going out in the evening in the town that I do live in the middle of by myself during the week, and I was hitting the beers, and I was eating out quite a lot, and I think in all honesty, I just allowed myself to put on weight. So hands up, I was a dick. Uh, it took me eight weeks, about nine weeks, sorry, to get that weight off. Um, I did it quite aggressively. Uh, and if you want to know how I did it, by all means, I should put a post out about that, shouldn't I, really? About how you can uh, rapidly lose some weight. But I've got some great sources if people are really interested in uh, who I went to and who I used to help me get rid of that. But let's, let's, do some, uh, let's do some podcast stuff now. I just want to say before I do start this podcast, um, I really appreciate people writing to me and uh, telling me their problems. I've just put out another essay, in fact, uh, was it last night? It might well have been, which is doing quite well at the moment. And um, that one is is talking about self-belief and confidence. It's something that I'm really big into at the moment, and I'm getting some great response on that. I'm getting some, a lot of people actually writing to me saying, you know, thank you. It's, it's, it's something that I think someone needed to say, and I have no issue with saying it. So it's worth reading. If you go to the website, it's, um, it's why pilots think big. Uh, and I think... You know, I really like the pre- you know, I really appreciate people's comment on that. So if you want to write something or, or write me an email or something, I would appreciate that. But today, let's go for it's all my fault and I'm going to make it right. About seven minutes, actually, I think that's what it's gonna be. Again, speed me up if you want to. So anyway, yeah, I've been grounded. So here we go. It was the sort of thing that only happened to other people, but now it had happened to me. That's so wrong, mate. I'd put a complaint in for sure. How dare he cried my friend down the phone when I told him my bad news. I'd been grounded, which as a pilot meant that I wasn't allowed to fly again until I'd been further assessed by a doctor. I just had my annual aircrew medical and there had been a problem. I was over the maximum boarding weight for the aircraft by a few pounds. The doctor said that he would have to inform the squadron boss and I knew what that meant. But unlike my angry friend, I wasn't mad. I was actually quite calm. Just break from here a little bit and talk about my being quite calm. This is something that people have a bit of an issue with. And I think the reason is they don't understand why I would be happy to lose a cockpit of a fast jet. But what I explained to them is this, and I think this, this is a dialogue we have now. This is why I like my audience because you guys are quite intelligent. In fact, you're fiercely intelligent, scarily so. And, and we can have this, these conversations, which is, I, I find myself so engaged with. It's, it's fascinating. When you've done something for 20 years, I'm sure anyone out there would appreciate 
when someone says that you're on a forced break, actually, you can take a step back and think, thank God for that. You know, I don't have to do this at the moment. And flying with students, especially when you're part-time in military fast jets, as I am part-time, of course, is is actually very difficult. Now, I'm not a guy that says stuff is difficult if it isn't difficult. I mean, I'm happy to do difficult things. And of course, in here, we talk about sorties have done the tornado that, that weren't the most pleasant sorties in the world. But when someone says you haven't got to do this anymore, I went home to my wife and I said, I haven't got to fly jets anymore. And she said, she said, well, that's fine. When I told her it was because of weight, and she said, that's fine. But don't leave the jet world because you're, you know, you're overweight. Leave it because you make a decision not that you don't want to do it yourself. And that's why I decided to lose the weight and get back in the cockpit. Anyway, and that was a bit of a digression there. And I, I do apologize. But that's my reasoning behind me actually being quite calm when the doctor told me. Now, city life. For the previous year, I'd been flying the jet part-time and was spending most of the month in an office away from the base. I was living a sedentary lifestyle in the middle of a really vibrant city and one that was encouraging me to make poor choices. I would regularly eat out. The bars and restaurants were where I could find a break from the isolation that defines such a solitary existence. Over the year, my office existence had added a few pounds to the waistline and, although I didn't feel much different from the year before, the scales were telling me a different story. Now, I was always surprised by the fact that you could be in weight on the day of your medical, but then remain unchecked for the rest of the year. I guess it came down to self-discipline and I, for one, had been found wanting. Now, even my wife found it unfair, but as I told her, it's actually quite simple. If you want to fly fast jets or indeed any type of aircraft, you have to conform to a set of defined parameters. Things such as eyesight, anthropometrics, which are limb measurements, weight and mental health all need to fall within agreed boundaries. And this is to ensure not only your own well-being, but that of those you may affect by your actions. Now, the aircraft I fly has a more restrictive ejection seat weight limit than most other fast jets in service with our Air Force. It's just the way the seat was designed, but it means that most women pilots need to be that bit heavier and most guy pilots need to be that bit lighter than if they were flying other jets. And sometimes it can catch people out. People like me. I'd unintentionally gone outside of those boundaries and it was my responsibility to get back in. And let me just put some sort of uh, a bit of gloss on this if, if I can. We'll add a bit of value here to you. When I talk about the Hawk T2 ejection seat, weight limit. I think it's from about in 56 kilograms through to about, these are nude weights, 56 through to 91.9 was the upper limit. So naked, you have to weigh, and of course you are naked when you go through the medical and your pilots get poked around the place, don't they? So 91.9 is what I needed to weigh beneath to still be in limit to fly that aeroplane. And I didn't, I weighed about 99. So, you know, I'd like to say I was big boned, but I wasn't. I just put on fat over the year. Through, through ill-discipline, really. That's what it was, indiscipline. So um, I had to lose, and I wanted to get myself down to 90, is what the doctors suggested I get myself down to give a bit of a buffer. So really, I had to lose about nine kilograms, which, you know, 99 kilograms for what essentially is a land mammal is, is, is quite a lot for a pilot. It is. It's a big issue that we have with our particular aeroplane because the Typhoon seat limit, I believe, is about 110 kilograms. I've got all these weights if anyone wants them. Um, the, uh, the Hawk T1 was about 108. In fact, the Tornado is 108, nude, this is, um, and of course, you have to be within these limits. In fact, as I said, for the, uh, the Hawk T1, some of the women that arrived 
with us are not 56 kilograms, so we have to kind of feed them up until they, they fit in the jet. Again, nude weight limits. The kit we wear adds about another 13 kilograms. So the G pants, all the flight manuals and everything we have on us, the books we carry, um, knee balls, anything else, our LSJ, life-saving jacket, our helmet, mask, everything else adds, all the flight kit we wear, all the thermals, boots and everything else, the knives and everything we have to carry, that weighs about 13 kilograms. So then we have another weight limit over that. But what we generally have said is that the nude weight limit is the one that we need people to, um, to be in. And I wasn't in it. So I was a bit shocked by it, I must admit. Uh, it wasn't something that we took, I'm not saying that seriously before. We'd obviously take it seriously, but we've gone hard over, and rightly so, on, right, you need to be in limit at the medical. And people get stopped flying if they're not in limit. And I was stopped flying. But I'd once read a book called Extreme Ownership, and it was written by two ex-US Navy SEALs who had spent time commanding special forces units in Ramadi, Iraq, back in 2006. Here's a quote from them. Extreme ownership. Leaders must own everything in their world. There is no one else to blame. That's by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Extreme ownership. It's worth having a, having a look at that book. No matter what line of work you're in, especially if you're in a leadership position, especially if you're in a leadership position, just read that book. And in fact, I think I talk about ownership in my latest um, essay. As you know, I'm a big fan of uh, owning your own problems and owning your own life because then you get to decide the direction it takes in. It, worth reading my latest um, essay if you can if you're interested don't if you're not of course okay so a hard decision now this book resonated with me for a couple of reasons and the first being that three years previously i'd been flying a tornado gr4 over southern iraq where we were asked by some navy seals to target insurgent activity in the rebel held town of fallujah some seven minutes flying time to the west of our operating area now, after some in-cockpit discussion, I was finally able to persuade my very senior navigator that although we both agreed that it was definitely the right thing to do, the town of Fallujah was strictly off-limits to British forces at the time. It was a US-only operation and we were not permitted to engage. I'll never forget the disappointment I felt in passing the pair of US F-15E Strike Eagles called in to replace us as we routed home. Now, as captain of the aircraft, the responsibility for that decision was mine and one I would have to own. But it was the right decision to make. But it was still a very difficult one to live with. Now, the second reason is that I've always advocated ownership, but I don't remember why or where I got it from. I could probably trace it back to the rugby field, school or parenting, but it probably came from the difficult early days on a frontline fast jet squadron. Not accepting the blame. I was once on a night low-level four-ship sortie in my tornado bomber flying out on the west coast of Scotland. I mean, the weather was atrocious. The light levels were poor and the night vision goggles or NVGs, they weren't being very helpful at all. We should probably have abandoned the flight as I was relying on a poor forward-looking infrared or FLIR picture and a temperamental terrain-following radar or TFR. And in these difficult conditions, I knew that errors were likely to be made. Now, I was in the front pair of a square-shaped formation with a couple of miles separating us from the rear two jets. A good friend was leading the back pair, and although he was new to low-level night work, he had been given the number three slot, which was regarded as one of the most demanding positions. As we reached the target area, the weather had worsened, and I, for one, was struggling to stay visual with a leader who was only a mile off my starboard wing. We only had to make one more turn 
and then we'd be heading back north and to clearer skies. But just as I was planning the turn, I noticed a dim shadow rapidly approaching and I instinctively bunted towards the black sea below. Christ, that was close, called my navigator as the darkened silhouette of a 26-ton tornado flashed across our canopy, the roar of its engines deafening our once peaceful cockpit. It was the leader of the back pair who must have missed us by a matter of feet. I instantly knew what he'd done. It was an easy mistake to make, especially on such an unpalatable night as this. We quickly terminated the sortie and headed home so we could debrief, learn some lessons and hopefully get some sleep. But as we were getting changed out of our flight kit, the navigator of the number three jet came and found me. He won't admit the mistake, he said. Oh, don't worry, it happens. It'll probably be me next time, I replied, trying to sound humble. Just tell him to bring it up when we talk about the safety bits and everyone will understand. He's being stubborn about it. He's just being a dick, came the reply. Now, I knew that my friend was just embarrassed, so before the debrief, I went and found him. I recommended that he bring it up early, tell everyone he'd made a mistake and that we could all learn from it. Flying squadrons in the RF promote a very open reporting culture as we recognise that learning lessons, however embarrassing they might be at the time, saves lives. We use honesty to encourage, not criticise, and our flight procedures are often said to have been written in the blood of those who have perished. But he was wounded and came out with every excuse in the book. He refused to take responsibility for what was obviously just a simple mistake and a common error. He'd lost sight of my aircraft after he'd made the turn in poor weather and... Instead of using the radio to say that he'd lost me, he just carried on blindly until we almost collided. I mean, I wasn't angry at him, but I knew that if he tried to hide his mistake from the rest of the formation, he'd get torn apart by the flight leader in the debrief. I couldn't convince him. He didn't own up, and he got slated for his dishonesty. That night has stuck with me forever as an example of what not to do. My own mistake... Now, recently I made an error that I momentarily thought about hiding. It was simple. I made the same mistake as my friend had made many years ago. I was over the RSC in a fight with a student when I lost sight of his aircraft while searching the dark skies above for his wingman. If this does happen, it is acceptable to give yourself a couple of seconds to try and find and reacquire the other jet before informing the formation of this situation. But I knew that I was taking too long. Luckily, the shot was taken and I was killed, which ended the exercise. I repositioned for the next event, cursing myself for my lack of professionalism. I'd lost sight of my playmate for maybe three to four seconds longer than I should have, but I was too embarrassed to call it on the radio. In the debrief, I admitted my mistake. I said that it was not acceptable to have left it that long and I apologised. As I expected, the other guys hadn't thought anything amiss, but it was not the point. I knew I'd let myself down, and that was enough. Now, I've seen students blame students, instructors blame instructors, and bosses blame anyone but themselves. But in all cases, it is never acceptable to abdicate the responsibility of a poor decision onto someone else. A friend of mine once had a boss who would always take the credit if a decision was well received by those above, but blame the entire squadron executive staff if it was looked on less favourably. He was always looking out for himself and the whole squadron knew it. Here's a quote. 
on any team in any organization or responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. The leader must own everything in his or her world. There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them and develop a plan to win. That again comes from Jocko Willink and Leif Babin in the book Extreme Ownership. And I wish I had an affiliate marketing thing on my site. I should have that. And you can go and get it and I'll get three pence every time you clicked on the link. Remind me to do that. Okay, people always know when you have failed to take responsibility for your actions and it damages you greatly, though none more than in how you view yourself. Accepting responsibility. Coming to the end here. A quick quote here. When you blame and criticize others, you're avoiding some truth about yourself. That's from Deepak Chopra. I've actually put a picture on here on the post. I know some of you guys don't go to the website. It's absolutely fine. It's only there if you want to have a look at stuff. But the, the quote I put on a picture of a guy standing on a hill and he's looking out at the mountains and, and, and he's obviously walking, doing some mountains and he's having a bit of a think about what he's doing. And it says here, um, I just put some words down. It said, the only thing standing between you and your goal is the bullshit story you keep telling yourself as to why you can't achieve it. Now, I like that. And I think about that a lot. Because for me, that's entirely true. And the reason I started my website and the reason I do the, the writing and the podcast and everything else and the videos, which I know helps the younger generation quite a lot, the younger generation love YouTube, don't they? Is because, it's because I, I felt I couldn't do it. I kept telling myself that wasn't possible. I was just flying jets or whatever. And I thought, no, hang on a second. This is wrong. Let's put some stuff out. And that's what I do. So, so maybe we shouldn't tell ourselves such bullshit, I guess. Okay, let's finish this off, shall we? Now, when you take responsibility for reactions and you stop blaming others, something remarkable happens. You are able to take complete ownership of the issue and gain sole responsibility in resolving it. How you view yourself when away from others will ultimately have an effect on your sense of self-worth. And this can be self-perpetuating. All too often, we go for the short-term happiness fixes. The unhealthy choices that we know in the long run are not in our best interest, but give us an immediate buzz. We know it's wrong, but we do it anyway. Sometimes it just takes a check or a nudge to make us aware that what we are doing isn't something that we actually want to do. Then we just, I want to talk about that a little bit. I'm just going to finish first. And I'm going to come back to that. We hold others up to the same standards that we set for ourselves, which is why we are so disappointed when they let us down. We expect them to have the same values as us, but this is often not the case. But what is so much more painful, however, is when we let ourselves down. So as I take an honest account of my insidious change from racing snake to lounging hippo, I recognize that I've let my own standards slip. I slid past the gym and into the bar, swapping the streets on which I ran for the sofa on which I recline. I've become more of a sizable man and less of a disciplined one. And in all honesty, all I can say is it's all my fault and I'm going to make it right. And that's the end. Now I'm recording this after I have made it right. And I'm going to do another one of these about how I made it right. That makes sense. Obviously, I couldn't put this out before Christmas. I'm going through a bit of a transitional phase, actually. It's to do with leaving the service and trying to work out my, uh, my worth as a, as a man and masculinity and all those kind of crazy things. And I think there's um, some people that would, would appreciate me talking about the role of the man in his 40s and 50s, uh, which I'm very interested in. I'm just going to go back to a bit I said I would go back to here. 
Uh, here we go. So it's when it says that sometimes it just takes a check or a nudge to make us aware that what we are doing isn't something that we actually want to do. Now, I met a guy in the office um, last week, in fact, when I just got out of the jet, I was down in the office. Um, I'd done some flying on the squadron back down in town. And uh, he said, oh, you're looking thin. And I said, oh, yeah, I had to lose about um, about 10 kilograms in the end. I said over Christmas, I, you know, I had to get rid of a few. Uh, I said, I put too much weight on stuff. I said, it must be living in the city. And he said, yeah, when I saw you before Christmas, actually, you know, you were looking a little bit big. And I said to him, why didn't you tell me? You know, I thought we were like brothers here. I thought men looked after men. I thought that was the whole point. We're supposed to keep an eye out for each other. It's a difficult time at the moment. 2017 as a man, you know, where's our value structure? You know, are we required anymore? Especially when men have kids, they've left home, you're with the wife. We know divorce rates go up because the man has no value. The wife doesn't necessarily need all that kind of stuff. This is what we need to talk about. As I said to my friend in the office, you could have told me. You could have just said, dude, you're putting a few pounds on. I say it to guys. I say to guys, hey, do you want to go for a run? You know, how's your lifting going? Or anything like that, you know? What kind of sports are you into right now? Anything, just to kind of nudge them into thinking, Am I living a kind of existence that I want to live? Am I doing the right thing? I, I, I could talk about this forever because I do value people's opinions and the, value the whole dialogue, which is why I'm, I'm going to get out of here now. And, and by all means, if you guys want to drop some comments on this post, really appreciate it. Send me an email if you want to, Tim at fastjetperformance.com. I do, I get, I've got a lot of buddies I've made actually from people that have sent me emails and uh, started dialogues with. In fact, I keep in contact with quite a few guys and it is mainly men to be honest, although obviously quite a few women as well that are coming into the flying sphere, but mainly, mainly men. So if you have a comment or, or anything you want to talk to about, by all means, send me an email. I'll leave it there. Um, I've got another two of these to put out at some point. So I've got to upload this and do all sorts of stuff. But um, and if there's anything else you want me to, to talk about, then by all means, again, uh, send that in. I really appreciate your time. I know it's precious. That's um, 22 minutes. Hopefully you can speed me up. And as I said, just um, make me, make me uh, go faster so I, I take less of an impact on your lives. Do appreciate you listening, really do. Thanks so much, till next time, Tim Davies, Fast Ship Performance.